Welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But last week we left off literally with Jesus standing in front of Pilate. All the leaders of Israel had arrested Jesus in the dark. And when you talk about injustice, um, I've done this before, but I've done a, a sermon on just all the injustices that happened the night that Jesus was arrested. Uh, and even to the point of the motto of the Sanhedrin was, we are here to preserve life. And yet they were willing to put up a man for crucifixion that did not deserve it. Uh, so, you know, literally he's standing in front of, the, front, front of Pilate. All the, all the leaders, the Sanhedrin and all that, are breaking their own rules, brought him to that point. And he had several trials that night and ended up in front of Pilate. And now Pilate was really the king of the Jews because the Romans had appointed Pilate as king at this point. And, you know, Pilate's really not a dumb man. He's very smart, very astute. He understood what was happening, but missed something on one point. He felt that this was a local dispute for the Jews. He did not understand the big picture of what was going on here. Other than them trying, you know, other than him trying not to get too heavily involved, he just kind of was like, almost blew it off, just like, well, this isn't even my thing. So Pilate doesn't quite know what to do, so he sends Jesus over to Herod. Because he found out that Jesus was a Galilean. You go and le- uh, read Mar- um, Luke and Matthew, you'll find out there's some more discussion. that We're not going to cover every little discussion detail here. But uh, you'll find out that he's like, oh, he's a Galilean. Okay, well, send him to Herod. Herod's in charge up there. Get him off my plate, in a sense. And Pilate thinks that, you know, thinks that, that he's figured this out. And he brags later to his wife, you know, I, I just sent him to Herod. Well, you know, wife's like, well, I thought you and Herod weren't even friends. Well, well, I'm not, but this might help. And it really does help in their relationship. It says that Pilate and, and Herod were friends after, from this point on, which is kind of a, a weird thing. Two enemies becoming friends over killing Jesus Christ. It's just really weird. But Herod was, was really tickled by this. In fact, he, he loved it. And if you read any of the extra history, I say extra history, the non-biblical history, like Josephus and other writers of the time, you'll find out that Herod was this, this really whacked out guy. I mean, just really a weird, wacky guy. He, he thought he might get Jesus to, to do some magic tricks. So he even tried to, to get Jesus to do some miracles. And Jesus just stood there and didn't say a word. In fact... Herod was the guy that had Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, beheaded. Jesus called Herod that fox. Now, today it has a different connotation than back then. Calling somebody that fox was, was a very negative thing. It was, it was really, I mean, it was, it was just a bad way to describe somebody. I'll just leave it at that. It wasn't a, a churchy word back then. Herod even allowed the Jewish leaders to question Jesus. It was very unusual. But Jesus did not even answer them. So he let the soldiers play games. And, and last week, I talked about this. And if you notice, you know what, let me... If you noticed right 
there. It's kind of hard to see, but you'll even see a scorpion, an outline of a scorpion there, chiseled into the rock. And this was literally a, a board game. Some people called it Scorpion. Some people called it King of the Jews. Because literally, you know how we have Monopoly in other games? Well, they had board games in a sense. The soldiers, the Roman soldiers standing around the, the Antonio Fortress etched this game into the ground. When they were bored, they would play. Well, this is also where Jesus was beaten. And they had this one game called Scorpion that they rolled dice, which was actually human bone made into dice. That's what dice were made of back then. They would roll this, and if it would land on different things, they get to do certain things to the prisoner. Well, if they landed on the scorpion, they literally got the cat of nine tails. You know, the, you know, the, the, the whip that had all the nine little different things with, with like glass tied around the end, and, and they'd be able to hit the prisoner with that. So Jesus literally is going through this humiliating time, and he stays silent. They mocked him. So then he sends, uh, Herod sends him back to Pilate and tells him, you can't do anything to this guy. He hasn't done anything. Look, I tried to even beat a confession out of him. It didn't work. Pilate says in Luke 23, and I'm going to jump to Luke and, and do some before I go back to John, but in Luke 23, 11, it says, Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and found no basis for your charges against him. Neither neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll punish him and release him. Basically saying, you know, every year I have a special deal for you guys. I release a a prisoner every year at Passover to please you guys. So I'm just going to punish this guy and I'm going to send him back out. He thinks he's got it figured out. Or I can release this guy named Barabbas. He was the one that you also brought and you wanted gone because he was the one that literally was trying to get the the Jews to fight against the Jewish, you know, the ones that were in charge, the Jewish government, the Sanhedrin. So you really wanted this other guy dead. I'll release Jesus and punish this guy. So which one is it? And without even thinking, they called out Barabbas. And then then he goes, well, what should I do with Jesus? And they start screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 18, it says, with one voice they cried out, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city. And he was also a murderer. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate asked them again, appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I've found him, you know, found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. You see him, he keeps trying going, come on, guys, this is, this is not right. Even he knows it's not right. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that, that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown in the prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Back to to John 19. It says, And Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. 
The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And don't think of like a little thorn bush type of crown of thorns. We're talking crown of thorns. You know, the thorns are like two inches long, crammed down on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hell, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I found no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Now imagine the the humiliation here. Pilate says, Ethea homo. Here is the the man and as soon as the chief priest and their officials saw him they shouted crucify crucify but Pilate answered you take him and crucify him as for me I find no basis in, uh, for a charge against him the Jews insisted we have a law and according to the law he must die because he claimed to be the son of God when Pilate heard this he was even more afraid And he went back inside of the palace. Now, where did you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave no answer. Do you you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize that I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, The one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to to be king opposes Caesar. Oh, you know, right here. I mean, unless you, you go back and study a little bit of history, you don't really know what's going on. They're saying Caesar will hear about this. And there's some history here because a couple of years ago, there was some money in the treasury from Caesar to finish the temple. He was trying to please the people of the area. Well, what does what Pilate do? He uses the money to, to literally build a 25-mile aqueduct, basically a pipeline above ground to bring water to his Jerusalem palace. He's already upset Caesar. He doesn't need another thing to, to upset you know, Caesar. He doesn't need them going, well, hey, he, he let a guy go that claims to be king here. No, Caesar was king. That's how it was. Verse 13, it says, When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at the the place known as the stone pavement. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king But Caesar, the chief priest, answered. This is an amazing thing to me. The chief priest who say they're king, they're lord, because that's what the word means, the person that's in charge of them, they're saying a man, Caesar, the Roman government, he's king. The chief priest that everybody should know, you don't say that. You're basically saying Caesar is a god above us. It's blasphemy. You know, 40 years later, Caesar would send soldiers to literally level the city. The Temple Mount literally gets all, you know, the Temple Mount, the platform has these huge walls up there. I'm talking, you know, 30, 40 foot walls. 
The walls were knocked down. In fact, the, the pavement on the road, hey, you have these huge boulders. And, and I keep saying this. I need to think about this ahead of time. I even have some of the pictures of the boulders that nailed the street below that caved in the pavement street. And these soldiers, they, literally there was so much gold that, that they set fire to all this. Enough with their, there's still remnants of that fire on the stone. You can see the blackened stone. It's amazing. Forty years after this. And here they're saying, oh, Caesar's our king. You live by the sword, you die by the sword sometimes, don't you? Verse 16, it says, Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull. Here they crucified him, and with two others, one on each side of Jesus, with Jesus in the middle. Pilate had, no, uh, had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief, uh, the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man has claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. When the soldiers uh, crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares. One for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece, from top to bottom. Let's not tear it. Ooh, this thing was worth some money. Let's not, no. This is a nice, I mean, Jesus was a rabbi. He, you know, he was provided nice clothing. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture may be fulfilled, which is said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross Jesus stood, or near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of uh, Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Basically, John, in a sense, adopted her as his mother. He moved to Ephesus. Guess who moved to Ephesus with him? Mom. He took care of her. That's a really cool thing. Later, verse 28 says, Knowing all that that was, uh, was now completed so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. Earlier, he'd turned down this narcotic-type juice that they used to deaden the pain. Uh, He didn't accept that, but this he did. So they soaked a sponge in it, put a sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of the preparation, and the next day was a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have his legs broken and the bodies taken down. And once again, you see the hypocrisy here. They helped murder an innocent man, but they don't want the Passover violated. It, it just goes from one side to the other. You're just sitting there going, How? the hypocrisy, you know, this would just wreck our dinner time if you left him up there, Pilate. Come on. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first men who had been crucified with Jesus. 
and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he, that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of the bones were broken. As the other scripture says, they will take on one they have pierced, or they, they will look on the one they have pierced. Now, this is important in, uh, for, for us to know and to understand that, you know, that when blood and water comes out, the, the spear that goes into the side, basically your heart has a sack around it. To, I, I won't try to pronounce it because I'll get it wrong up here. But, you know, it means you're truly dead when water and blood comes out. That means your heart is no longer protected at all. It's filled with fluid, and, and it bursts this sack also. So, you know, the, the reason why I touch on this is because there was a theory going around, and even a theory even today going around, well, Jesus, he really wasn't dead because, it, you know, they didn't break his arms, so he didn't, you know, his lungs were still able to operate. And it, all this mess going on, it, it's very gross, but very important for us to understand this. What an eerie scene this must have been. The scriptures say that when people were leaving, they were literally in, gr- in grief. And the word grief there meant, uh, if you read some of the other scriptures there, it, it, like the men literally walking away, beating their chest. Not just like, oh, oh, that's too bad. No, they were beating themselves, hitting their chest hard. And the women would do that. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a Middle Eastern funeral, the high-pitched welling and, and the, the, you know, the sounds that they make. The women would have been doing that. Verse 38, it says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. When Pilate, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and the strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs at the place where Jesus was crucified. There was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever laid because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, I do have a couple of pictures of what they think, uh, where they think this actual tomb was. This was a, a garden area very near there, and uh, this is actually one of the ritual baths, the, the mikvahs, where, where a Jewish person would go in and do a ritual bath to cleanse themselves. Um, and here's the actual tomb, and, and literally you go in, it's just a rock slab, cut in a cave, you know, a hole in a wall, very small, not a huge thing. And literally, I mean, it's just a very simple thing. And this is where many evangelicals, many scholars believe that his tomb was. But what's amazing to me in this story is that Jesus had an effect on everyone. Not just his followers and those who crucified him, but a lifetime lasting effect on people. We know that by Acts chapter 6, many of the priests, the, many of the, the upper echelon of, of the priesthood that, that ran the temple to become Christians, which was very interesting for them. They were followers of Christ and still in the temple doing their duty. It was kind of a, a weird, you know, that, that had to be hard for them. Everyone was affected by this. The men, the women, the, the, the priests, the children. Think about this. 
You had people for the very first time asking about Jesus and, and what he was and what he meant to, to, to them. Was he really God? You had priests having to decide if Jesus was God. You had the Jews who had always worshipped one God having to decide, is Jesus a part of God? What's this whole three-in-one thing? What's the, the Spirit and God and Jesus? Now, how does that work out if we only worship one God? What is it to bring a name of, of Jesus Christ into a situation? It automatically brings a response, either positive or negative, or a scratching of the head. We're like, well, why is that entering into this? It says here that Joseph of Arimathea was afraid. But what's interesting, he, is no, he can no longer hide his beliefs. Too many times we get to a point in our lives where we hide our beliefs. Well, we don't, we're not going to say anything. Don't want to offend somebody. I found myself in the same situation where I had... Um, some guys doing some work at my house, at, uh, um, doing uh, some things. And as they were working, one of the guys just kept cussing, just kept cussing. I'm like, okay, do I, do I say, hey, that offends me? Do I not? And it was a struggle. It's like, what do I say? When do I say it? You know, uh, it's like, ah, I don't know what to do. We find ourselves in those situations. Here, Joseph could no, you know, no longer can he hide. Then you have Nicodemus. You all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Okay, you all, if you don't know that, it's a great, wonderful verse. Look it up. But Nicodemus was the guy that Jesus said this to. He came to Jesus in the middle of the night. Now, it's not uncommon to approach Jesus. I mean, Jesus had people coming at him all day long, even certain leaders. But Nicodemus had a reason to, to, he, he just couldn't come to Jesus during the day. He was the most respected rabbi in Israel, completely. I mean, he was the upper, he was the guy. He had the best school. If you wanted your kid to be in the priesthood, or you wanted your kid in the Sanhedrin, you had to go to Nicodemus' school. This, this is like Yale or Harvard or, or Stanford or, or, you know, being a Rhodes Scholar, you know, all those type of things. This is like the school. Every Jew would have known about this school. Every Jew living, living in London, and Alexandria, in Rome, everybody would have known Nicodemus and his school. From Ephesus to Corinth, they would have known. This guy had to risk a lot to come to Jesus in the middle of the night and ask questions. To be taught by another rabbi that supposedly is underneath you. Both of these guys were part of the Sanhedrin. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus ruled the Jews all over the world. It wasn't just religion, it was also politics. You didn't want to get into controversial positions. You know, the night before this, they would have been sitting at those trials. And they chickened out by not saying anything. I wonder if they looked at each other, kind of like that knowing look like, dude, should we, should we say something? No, 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 this is not the time. Let's deal with it later. You know, I wonder what that was like. I'm sure they were wishing they would have spoken up at this point. More than any other men in the world, especially Nicodemus, because Nicodemus knew that Jesus was right. He had studied it all, and he also feels that it's almost too late. But it was more than just politics. It was family. For Nicodemus... 
It was a lifetime and generations of learning. You didn't get in this position just because you locked out and you were the, you know, you made straight A's in your, you know, elementary school. No, this was generations leading up to him being the high, you know, being, being the guy in charge of that school. He's turning his back on everything he's been taught and some of you understand this, you know, coming from an unbelieving family, you know, you, you go home for holidays, dinners just aren't quite the same anymore because, well, you're a Christian. You just kind of leave that discussion away because you're sitting there going, I don't want to fight this Christmas. I don't want to fight this Thanksgiving. I don't want to do that. Sometimes there's a loneliness of being born again. It is tough. But also there's economic reasons here. These guys were not poor men at all. They were very wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea had a beautiful garden. He may have been even the guy that owned the Garden of Gethsemane, which gave the disciples the key to get into that garden. Right outside the city, the, you know, basically you know, right outside the, the, the inner part of the city, they would have all these private areas. And here's these guys. Taken... Or they're going to the governor and asking for the body without consulting the other members of the Sanhedrin. This would have caused problems. I mean, there's a power here, and, and, and you're going to a huge power. I mean, you're dealing with the power of the Sanhedrin, then you're dealing with the power of the governor. And basically, I mean, you try to go set up an impromptu you know, meeting with Arnold. Arnold. Hey, Arnold, can I talk to you? Just, just go on to Sacramento, knock on the governor's door. I'm sure he'll have a meeting with you. I mean, wouldn't he? Same concept here. These guys, I mean, there's some power behind them. They have connections to be able to, to meet with a Roman governor here. Can you imagine the family? Where's Papa? It's almost Passover time. Where, where, where'd Papa go? Family's in there talking in low, t- low terms. Where did he go? I don't, do you know where he went? What? He went, no, 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 no. He went down and stopped that. He didn't, no, no, not, not, our family doesn't do that kind of stuff. To do what? He converted to this cult? You know, you can almost, the, the Jews, oi! I'm glad my mother's not here to see this. He's hanging out with Nicodemus? Well, well, that's good. The, the rabbi, I mean, he's... What? He's converted too? Would your family be okay with you donating your retreat, you know, in your family tombs without asking them? A convicted criminal? In your... What you consider yours? Well, this is a defining moment for both of these men. They just can't be silent anymore. In John 7, Nicodemus tried to speak up at one point, and literally he was attacked. So he shut up. He hushed. I'm not going to say anymore. Not right now. Now, if you go read Josephus, you'll find out that Nicodemus' school was completely shut down. His reputation was shot. His riches literally started to dwindle. But he didn't care, Josephus says. He went from what will others think of me and my family to 
what will I think of myself if I don't do this? It was time for him to either move forward and speak into the truth or to step back. It was decision time. Joseph of Arimathea did not care about the next business deal at this point. See, the light of Israel was snuffed out. The truth had been removed from this earth. The seats of the Sanhedrin didn't quite feel the same after that. Imagine these guys that night going to the market. I mean, these guys probably hadn't been to the market in years. They had servants that did all that. Going and getting the myrrh and, 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 you know, and, uh, and the different you know, spices. Oh, grab that. That'll be really good. Carrying 75 pounds of this stuff to wrap the body. Well, where'd you get the linen? Well, I took it off our bed. I, I just, that was the only thing available. You can imagine the conversations. Now, yeah, this isn't scriptural. It doesn't say it in there. But I'm just trying to imagine, you know, what was it like for these two powerful men to go get this stuff and do this? And take the body and start washing it. Start anointing it. Start wrapping it. They're grieving. They don't know that they're going to talk to him, you know, talk to him again. We're like, well, well, guys, just hang in there. Well, yeah, we know the story. They didn't. They thought this is it. The truth was silent. What they would give to be able to hear him again. And by wrapping the body, they were worshiping. And the next day, you know, the word would have been out. I mean, it's holiday time. All the families are in. I mean, perfect rumor mill time, right? People can just communicate. They're right there. No letter writing. We just talk about it. But what is important in their lives has changed for them. See, the reality is it's the same risk for us. To be a follower of Jesus is to give up on all of our other options in our lives. We can't keep this a secret in our lives. We need to act upon it. We need to, to allow others to see how Jesus has affected us on a daily basis. Yeah, there's some truth in following Jesus. Number one, just as I've said, you can't keep it a secret. You just can't. Secondly, there's a cost of following Jesus. Cost of friends, cost of family sometimes, maybe even a job. But all those costs are nothing compared to the alternative, losing your soul. When these guys finally started acting on their beliefs, all of a sudden, they were serving Jesus himself. Third truth that I saw in this is better late than ever. It is one thing to be a child and be at camp or, or, you know, somewhere and accept Jesus and everybody's just like, yeah, you know, you're the last kid at camp, you haven't raised your hand and they're all singing, you know, and the counselor's like staring at you, are you going to raise your hand? It's one thing to be a child and accept Jesus and that's a wonderful thing, I'm not knocking that, don't get me wrong, I mean, I was a child when I accepted Christ. But it's another thing for an adult to say, you know what, how I've been living is wrong. It's another thing for an adult to say, you know what? What I believe, I, I, I'm confused right now. For an adult, it has immediate effects on our lives. Chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Early in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one that Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. The body is stolen. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. 
Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And if you haven't figured this out, this other disciple is John, the one writing the book. He loves this. He loves saying that that Jesus, I'm the one that Jesus loved more than anybody else. And that's really how we should feel. You know, we kind of rag on him a little bit, but I love this idea. Jesus loves me. This is what he's saying. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. You know, this probably drove everybody nuts. John probably went around going, it was folded, did I tell you? It was folded. No, 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 no. Literally, I mean, it, it was folded. Well... He hung out with Jesus for three and a half years. He knew how Jesus folded things. You know, you know the habits of those that are around you. I know my wife's handwriting. I can just see one or two letters. I know instantly. Why? I've seen her handwriting a lot. Here, John, the reason why this is in there, John's going, it was folded. Like Jesus folded it. It was folded. Finally, the other disciples who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still, they still did not understand the, uh, from Scripture that Jesus had to, be, had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. At this She turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, and this kind of cracks me up. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, if you've done this, let me know. Tell me, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around toward him and cried out in Arabic, Rabboni, teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord, and she told them that, these things that had happened to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked, the fear of the Jews, I'm in verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with this, or with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Ironically, at this point, they get to do what he's been doing all along. And they got it. They understood it. This got me thinking about how comfortable we get and how uncomfortable we get talking about the Holy Spirit. We get so comfortable in our Christian life. We get so comfortable with what we think, what we've studied, what we believe. 
that we often kind of leave out the spirit and keep with the learning, keep with the book style learning, which is, don't get me wrong, I, you, know, you know me, I push that. That's why we study the word of God. That's why this is so important. But sometimes we need that fresh breath of the Holy Spirit in our lives. A new understanding, and and it's not really a new understanding, but it's just all of a sudden our eyes are opened to what we kind of already know because we've studied it. And all of a sudden the Spirit wants to start welling up in us and wants to start using us in ways that we've never thought about. For us to realize that the Holy Spirit is, is a living Spirit within us. Not just something that we, we, you know, we pull out, you know, as our card. Oh, yeah, I got the Holy Spirit here. See, on my driver's license said, Holy Spirit, I get to go to heaven. It's not something we just pull out at that point. Honey, where'd you put my passport to heaven? Did you get the visas right? You know, we tithe all, you know, all those years. It's got to be around somewhere. It's not about that. Now, we need to understand that he wants to use us now. This is why he came out of the grave This is why, you know, 2,000 years later, we're studying the Word of God. Because He wants to use us now. This is why He went through the valley of the shadow of death. So we don't have to or need to. That even now that we have difficulties in this life, and I've talked to enough of you guys, I understand. We have difficulties in life. That we can rely on the fact that we will know Him when He speaks our name. You know, in fact, the scriptures say that he has a special name for all of us. I don't know how he keeps them all straight. But he has a special name. You go read Revelations and it talks about that. And that we will recognize that when he speaks to us. When we get to heaven, you know, he'll say that name. We'll instantly know he's talking about me. But what an awesome thought to know that he wants us to follow him now, to believe in him now, to serve in him now, to rely on him now, to give him our sorrows, to rejoice with him now. Now, now is the time to allow him to work in our lives. Now is the time to, to, to say to him, Jesus, what do you want from me? What do you desire from me? What is your will for my life? What do you want me to do with all that? You know, it sounds selfish, but it's not when it's through the Holy Spirit. It's not when we say, Jesus, what do you want from me? Do something with me. That's not selfish when it's through the Holy Spirit. When we allow him to guide us, he will speak to us. Do you need a fresh dose of Jesus Christ in your life today? It's not all of a sudden you're filled again. It's not like you got to just, you know, every Sunday I got to go back to church because, you know, my, my spirit quota has kind of gone down. I need to be refilled. No, the spirit is already in you. If you believe in him, if you've accepted him, it's a living, breathing, in a sense, you know, thing in you. You just need to decide. Can I allow Jesus, can I allow Jesus to be active in my life today? That's a decision that only you can make. Who here needs to, you know, to have Jesus more active in their life? I mean, I know we, we all should raise our hand and go, oh, I knew, I do, I do, you know. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, who really has sat there and felt like, man, I need Jesus more involved in my life. I need Jesus to, to help me make some decisions. Maybe they're small decisions. Maybe they're big decisions. I need Jesus to, to take that pain away. I need Jesus to show me where he wants me to serve him. 
I need Jesus. Maybe that's just it. Maybe it is. I need Jesus. If any of those things apply to you today, raise your hand. If you're trying to make a decision, you're sitting there going, I need Jesus to help me make that decision, raise your hand. Are you going through pain? Raise your hand, because I want to pray for you. That's all. Yeah. You see, we always do this, oh, let's bow our heads, close our eyes, no one look. But the reality is, the more hands you see raised, the more you see, you see people going, wow, they're just like me. They need Jesus. They need Jesus' help. They need the Holy Spirit to be active in their life. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for those that raise their hand. I pray for those, each, each one of those, Lord. My spirit cries out that you would help them. You understand their hurts. You understand their needs. You understand their desires. And I pray that you totally take that hurt away. Give them what they need. Change their desire to match your desire, Lord. Lord, we go through life with pain and sorrow. We go through life not knowing how to handle situations. And we get a glimpse of clear sky or a breath of fresh air. We finally realize, oh, you're here. I pray, Lord, in the middle of our storms, in the middle of our decisions, that we remember who you are and how you can help us. You're a gracious God. You're gracious enough to go to the grave for us. But the glorious thing is you didn't stay in that grave, Lord. You rose from the grave. And that is what we come together to celebrate, Lord. We thank you so much for that. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine down upon you. May his spirit well up in you and help you with those things that you're needing help with. May his face never turn from you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.